Reflections on the Bible Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 8 There's one thing to notice about this thing. It's very good. It's very good. This, this is deconstruction at its best. It's deconstructing the myth that obscures the generative nature of the founding violence. However, Butler's Lives of the Saints contain, even metaphorically here, tell stories of those whom we can admire, who are outside of our purview, what Gerard calls external mediators, Whose, whose deeds and courage and so on we can admire and emulate and, and whatnot. But as soon as it becomes People, People magazine, it's just, it's just the internal mediation. It's, it's just the scandal and the gossip and the, you see, Sam Houston wore a girdle. I mean, it, it's that kind of stuff. And it, and it levels everything. And, it's, and there has to be a leveling. You know, Isaiah says the mountains will be made low. And the valley's raised up. We're living through that right now. All the former victims are rehabilitated. All the former victors are leveled. You see, that's the world we're living in right now. So get used to it. But, there's, but without some kind of external mediation, then we're all, we'll be living in the world of People magazine and very quickly it will become National Enquirer. And what does National Enquirer generate? Myth. So out of, that's the phoenix. That's the phoenix rising out of its own ashes, you see, the new mythic thing. And that's already begun. But before I get to that, I have some stories about how myth, how myth rises like the phoenix out of the ashes of these things. But before I get to it, one more story. Like I say, they fell into my lap this week. Some of these characters are condemned not only to People magazine, they, they, they're taken out of Butler's Lives of the Saints and put in People magazine, but sometimes they're taken out of Butler's Lives of the Saints and they're put in Mother Goose. You know, They didn't even exist. And that's the case in this story. This was on Wednesday of this last week. And it's a story about a controversy in Switzerland, exactly like the one in Texas, over William Tell. And he's the founding figure. He's the, he's the, the Sam Houston, Davy Crockett uh, figure, you see, in, in uh, Swiss history. And now they're saying he didn't exist. And here's, I'm quoting from the article. They invented all the great events and then put the invented figure of Tell into this landscape. Professor Werner Meyer, who holds the chair of medieval history at Basel University, said in an interview in his cluttered office, I was very happy to hear that his office was cluttered. <laughs> it means that you can deconstruct some of these things from a cluttered office, which is encouraging. Anyway, then he goes on. Uh, Professor Meyer said no evidence has been unearthed that the Tell figure ever existed. He became linked to the founding. Now, get this. He became linked to the founding of Switzerland through his mythical assassination of the non-existent Austrian envoy in the 15th century. Now, he became the founding figure. Why? Because of the myth of his assassination. Think about the Goldstein story. 
think about that. You see? The pattern is the same. The structure is the same. One is constructing and the other is deconstructing. The pattern is the same. The crowd said, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And when Saul heard that, he knew his time was up. Prestige is generated by sacred violence, violence that has been sacralized. And sacralized violence becomes generative. And the one who presides over it becomes the prestigious one. Okay, so now we have two things going on. We have, and they're happening at the same time. This is what makes the world such an amazing place. You see myth coming, generating itself in the, in the story of Goldstein and, the, and, and those who want to avenge the deaths that he, that, that he caused and, and, the, and the story in Serbia, you see. And then you get this other side where they're deconstructing it. So now Professor Meyer has says, uh, Professor Meyer says, William Tell was the founding figure because of a mythical assassination of a non-existent Austrian envoy in the 15th century. Quoting from the story, quote, In later centuries, the professor said, Tell was put through many other guises, was made to die a martyr's death, and achieved near saintly status in the Roman Catholic Church. End quote. Now that's very interesting because what happens this tells us something about Western history. This tells us something about history in a world where the gospel is beginning to have its effect. The founding figure is an assassin. No problems with that at some point in history. The founding figure can be an assassin. Could the founding figure be an assassin today? Well, some places, obviously. I just read a story about it. But for how long? Okay, well, the founding figure was an assassin, but as the legend enveloped him, when he apparently didn't even exist, the legend was, who knows what the origin of the legend was, but I'll bet you anything it was an assassination. <laughs> I'll bet you anything it was violent. Ne- nevertheless, there's a, there's a legend, and it, cr- and it creates the figure of William Tell, who's an assassin, and over time, the assassin becomes the martyr, and then the martyr becomes the Christian saint. What's happening in the imagination of the people, the paraclete. The paraclete is having its effect. Now, it's producing, in a way, more myth. But it's at least producing theologically correct myth. (laughs) If you see what I'm saying. It's having having an almost perverse effect. But you can tell that that it's that that's having that effect. That's why I'm saying the good news is, is buried in the bad news. And so now, William Tell has to take his place alongside St. Christopher and several others who made it into the role of saints without existing. <laughs> but also notice the the movement from assassin to martyr to saint, a movement which was made unbelievably rapidly in the aftermath 
of Baruch Goldstein's mass murder. Assassin martyr saint. Just like that. Now, was that made because those people are weird? No. It was made because they're human. And for us humans, especially when we're really caught up in, 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 the, in the social madness, that is the default position. Assassin, martyr, saint. Something like that. The remythologizing efforts begin as soon as the ground is cleared of the old myth. Going back to the Texas story for a second. Gary Gabehart, president of the Intertribal Council of American Indians in San Antonio, came to the monument, the, the Alamo Monument, brandishing an arrow. This, Mr. Gabehart said, is the arrow of truth, justice, and historical fact. Sweeping his arm and arrow toward the street and plaza in front of the Alamo, he said, and this is Campo Santo, sacred ground. And it's because there's some speculation that there's a burial ground underneath all that, uh, and he was claiming it for his ancestor. Well, you see, the victims of the former myth now have in the world that is deconstructing the myth, the world is deconstructing the myth is the world existing under the influence of the gospel. In the world that's deconstructing the myth, it's the victims of the of uh, that it's the victims of the former myth that have moral the moral strength, the moral place, the moral leverage, and they show up. And it's appropriate in some way because it's the, it's, the, it's the rehabilitation of the victims, a very important part of this process. The daughters of the Republic of Texas also showed up because they've been in charge of the Alamo since 1905. The legislature gave them a, a, you know, this duty in 1905, and they've been running the show since 1905. And they're very upset to find out that Sam Houston wore a girdle and was an opium addict and all the rest of it. And so they have set their heels against this kind of uh, th this kind of scandal and uh, and so on. But they know how to fight fire with fire, so to speak. What's going on here is the deconstruction of a of of an existing myth under the biblical revelation. No, who's? I don't think anybody in Texas is talking that way. But I think we can see that that's actually what's happening. And so. Part of that is the rehabilitation of the victims. So the daughters of the Texas, the daughters of the Republic of Texas show up, prepared to engage this question in terms that will be to their advantage. So, in last St. Patrick's Day, they join the parade, portraying the Alamo defenders, who included several Irish and Mexicans, and at least one black, as the first rainbow coalition. <laughs> Do you see what's happening? Can you just see what... But even at the very end of the article, uh, Mrs. Hannah Hartman, who heads the Daughters of the Republic of Texas Alamo Committee, said, quote, there's something macho about it. Some of the men who are attacking us just resent what has been a successful female venture since 1905. <laughs> so this is really, this is, this is, this is the paraclete casting out the paraclete. 
<laughs> I mean, this is the it, this is very strange. You see. So, in a world touched by the gospel, the only moral high ground is that of the victim. Everyone claims it. And if successfully made, the claim gives the claimant a moral and political advantage that most are willing to use against their former victimizers with the same robust righteousness with which their victimizers employed whatever advantage they had at their disposal. You see that? It's the paraclete casting out the paraclete. The only effective weapon we have in the world today, the only morally effective weapon we have, is the corpses of our enemy's victims. And we dig them up and throw them at our enemies. Which reminds me of, a, reminds me of an anecdote about Abraham Lincoln. He was on a committee, and the committee was squabbling and getting nowhere, producing nothing, being committee-like in every way. And he said... Finally, in exasperation. Well, tell me this. How many legs would an elephant have if we called the trunk a leg? And they all said five. And he said, no, four, because calling it a leg doesn't make it a leg. <laughs> okay. So we live in a world where the deconstruction of these myths and the and the emergence of them is happening at the same time. What happens when the old myths are being deconstructed by the determination to get to the truth, the gospel truth? Truth, you know, in Greek is aletheia, which means to stop forgetting. The determination to get the truth is there. Nevertheless, we're still humans. We still get caught up in craziness, and in, in, the, in the pitch of that craziness, we still go through the same process. It's, it's not voluntaristic. It's a, that's why Girard uses the term mechanism. It's something that happens in social, it's a social event that happens when we get crazy enough. And so if the old myths are being deconstructed and the new myths are emerging in this very hostile environment, hostile towards them, then slowly but surely the world is being deprived of the, of the stability of its cultural life. A stability that's referred to in a couple of things. And I have three quotes I want to share with you. One from the poet Robert Penn Warren. He says, Violence, forgot now, lent the present stillness all its power. It perfectly correlates with Nemiroff's The murders become memories and the memories become the beautiful obligation. In other words, what happens, though, when violence is no longer forgot? Does the present stillness lose its stillness and its power? If we start looking back and we think, wait a minute, let's find out what actually happened. Let's get past the myth. What really happened? Then it starts to lose its stability. In the same vein, Pascal says, the truth about the usurpation, that's Pascal's word for how monarchies generated. He says, you, we don't want to look at how the monarchies came to be because it, they didn't come to be by the flip of a coin. It was probably some very gory process involving uh, an overthrow and a murder and a lot, of, uh, a lot of stealth and intrigue and plotting and violence and so on. Best, we simply look at the monarchy and see the radiant crown and the, 
and the trumpets and the red carpets and you know the hymns and the songs and the so on and so forth. Best we just see that and not see what's on the other side of it. So he says the truth about the usurpation must not be made apparent. It came about originally without reason and has become reasonable. We must see that it is regarded as authentic and eternal and its origins must be hidden if we do not want it soon to end. Now that's an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing. We better not look at it if you want to live in a really stable culture because it's just as Robert Penn Warren said, violence forgot now lent the present stillness all its power. And that's why there's so little present stillness in our world. Here's something, here's something else that echoes Pascal and Robert Penn Warren. And it's from a professor of law at the University of Colorado who recently wrote an article in the Virginia Law Review entitled Idolatry in Constitutional Interpretation. You, th you think, what is Gill doing? I, I appreciate that, but I hope that you'll see the connection here when I read it. Uh, in the article, Professor Smith says that, quote, to be sure, the defense of idolatry can never be enthusiastic, but dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you see how that connects with Pascal? The defense of idolatry can never be enthusiastic. However, under the present circumstances, we better think about it. Okay, now listen to what the professor has to say. From the perspective of the political state, idolatry may be preferable to non-belief. This position need not be understood as tyrannical or self-serving on the part of those who control the state. Indeed, the governors might promote idolatry solely in the interest of the governed, which is what the Grand Inquisitor did. If the alternative to idolatry is the loss of community or even civil chaos, then the interest of the citizens may require cultivation of an idolatrous civil religion. If the alternative to idolatry is the loss of community, carry that around in your head this week. If the alternative to idolatry is the loss of community, that's the apocalyptic insight. This, this Virginia Law Review article is a little bit like Nietzsche. It's, it's profoundly wrong-headed, but at least it's wrong-headed on the right subject. At least he, he understands what's at issue. So he says, if the alternative to idolatry is the loss of community or even civil chaos, then the interest of the citizens may require the cultivation of idolatrous civil religion. He goes on. For a political community that needs to believe in something beyond itself but cannot acknowledge any actual higher source, the imaginative endowment of law with transcendent wisdom or moral meaning may be the only way to maintain an illusion too precious to be relinquished. An illusion too precious to be relinquished. Think about that. And I would say he's on to something. And I think he's got it all wrong, but the thing he's got all wrong is the right thing. He sees what's happening. Now, for a political community that needs to believe in something beyond itself but cannot acknowledge 
any higher, actual higher source. That's that's when idolatry is mandatory. So if Professor Smith is right, the choice is going to be, there's, we have three options, chaos, faith in an actual higher source, or idolatry. So there you have it, idolatry, faith, or chaos. But I'm what I want to carry with us as we look at the rest of the things I have today to talk about is this idea of an illusion too precious to be relinquished. It seems to me that's what Pascal was talking about. Exactly what Pascal was talking about. But I would say Pascal and Professor Smith both recognize the danger we run in exposing the truth behind the myth. So I would say that historical Christianity, or what we call Western history, is a struggle between the revelation of the cross and an, and an illusion too precious to be relinquished. And the struggle has gone both ways, you know. The, the illusion too precious to be relinquished has, has uh, won out uh, many, many, many times. But its longevity, the longevity of the myth that it generates, has grown shorter and shorter and shorter. I have something here that's only peripherally part of this, but I, I will share it because in case the question should come up. One could say, well, how about the current deconstructing of the myth of the founding of Christianity? But what I'm thinking of specifically here is the search for the historical Jesus, which is a search driven by the need to get at the truth, the actual historical truth. And it's a search for which, for which I have mixed feelings, but I want to just share some things to see if it helps clarify. I think the gospel truth, if Paul's right, the gospel truth is the cross. And whether our curiosity about what Jesus actually said is one we can ever hope to satisfy is highly doubtful. But there's nothing wrong with trying to satisfy it. There's nothing wrong with trying to satisfy it unless the search for what Jesus actually said causes the focus of primary attention to shift from the crucial fact, crucial meaning cross, the crucial fact of the cross toward either the personality or the wisdom of Jesus. Since myth always conceals violence by deflecting attention away from it, that is to say, from generativity to the themes of the story, since myth always conceals violence by, by deflecting attention away from it, should the search for the historical Jesus cause the cross to be subordinated to the personality or wisdom of Jesus, the quest would in effect function mythologically. It wouldn't be myth by any means, but it would, have, it would function mythologically if it causes the fundamental demythologizing event to recede from its center place in our understanding of the New Testament. And on that score, by the way, I was reading this morning's New York Times, and Peter Steinfeld has a, his religion column in there, and he was talking about the, the, 
scholarly controversy going on about the burial of Jesus. And a lot of people are getting in on the controversy, but the main figures in the in the controversy that Steinfeld quotes are uh, Dominic Crossan and Raymond Brown. And Raymond Brown, I don't want to get into the controversy. Anyway, it's a controversy about was Crossan says Jesus probably wasn't buried, thrown in a shallow ditch, and the dogs ate his his, his body. And and, uh, and Raymond Brown says no, there's no reason not to believe since. Joseph of Arimathea is a very weird guy. I mean, a strange guy to come into the story, and he was a Pharisee and so on. Clearly, that would have been very hard to cook up that story, so it's very likely that he was buried. So, anyway, it goes like that. And, and Steinfeld sort of catalogs the outlines of the story, and then he ends his article by saying this. Many Christians made impatient or anxious by disputes like these may conclude that the real answer to who buried Jesus is Scripture scholars. <laughs> well, I don't want to scapegoat scripture scholars because I benefit from their work all the time. But the point is, I think we have to keep Paul in mind. And Paul says, we're preaching Christ crucified. We're not preaching the Jeffersonian Jesus, you know, the Jesus who has all these wise sayings, or the cynical Jesus, if you read the Gospel of Thomas. We're not, that's not going to save the world. What's going to save the world is the cross. Well, I wanted to talk about contemporary events a little bit, and, and they are apocalyptic events, so I want to go back and remind us that apocalypse means unveiling. So we're these, these events are apocalyptic. We can recognize them as apocalyptic because we're outside of the mythic veil that makes, makes them meaningful, justifies them. If we were living in these places where the... Where societies are falling into these these terrible violent rituals we would probably be caught up in them we wouldn't be as outraged but we would be outraged but it would always be outraged it would be a reciprocal kind of polarized outrage we'd all be outraged at the other and justifying their their deeds our deeds towards them in terms of their deeds towards us and so on so there would be outrage but it would always be the scandal of the of the doubles, of the rivals, and not the kind of the kind of outrage we feel, which is just incomprehension at the throwing away of human life in these causes that have no coher- no real coherence and meaning. So the apocalypse is something that happens to those whose eyes have been unveiled. That is to say, I don't, I'm not talking about the violence is always visited on those whose eyes have been unveiled, but the experience of apocalypse is to look out and see the world apocalyptically, to see the world without the veil of mythic illusion, and to realize that fundamentally there's no reason for what's happening. That what's, the violence that is happening out there is generating its reasons. It isn't born of reasons. The, Simone Weil, by the way, understood this perfectly well. She said the cause... the. She said, violence justifies the cause. It isn't the cause that justifies the violence. And that's why the violence is in escalating all around because forms of violence don't, re- don't cause that kind, of, that kind of justification. And so they're escalated, escalated, trying to achieve a kind of mythic quotient that will make them finally convincing. So 
the New Testament, there's all kinds of apocalyptic language in the New Testament. Some of it, uh, some of it contaminated with the myth of sacred violence. And so we have to read it with some caution, I think. The New Testament writers are using imagery born of sacred violence, born of the myth of sacred violence, but they're using it in order to expose the essential human nature of this terrible violence. And sometimes they do it with more sophistication than others. So, for example, the book of Revelation is a little problematic, more so than the Gospels. The letter to the Hebrews is is likewise uh, somewhat problematic because it uses so much sacrificial language. Nevertheless, I would say that all of the New Testament apocalyptic can be summed up in the following two verses of the letter to the Hebrews. And it goes like this. If after we have been given knowledge of the truth, remember truth is aletheia, to stop forgetting, and it's the cross that gives us knowledge of the truth. If after we have been given knowledge of the truth, we should deliberately commit any sins, then there is no longer any sacrifice for them. There will be left only the dread prospect of judgment and of the raging fire that is to burn rebels. Now, the word judgment is the word for crisis. And I think we should not read this. We automatically import to this text and texts like this the wrath of God, the punishing wrath of God, the, the, the violence of, a, of an angry God and so on. And there's some warrant for that in terms of some of these texts, I say, are, I would say, are, are corrupted. That's probably not the fair use of the term. By sacrificial thinking. Nevertheless, I think we should... We should, be, we should withhold this impulse to read into this text more than is there. Divine wrath, uh, divine violence, and so on. And I think it says all we need to know. Once we have been given knowledge of the truth by the cross, once we have had the veil of the temple rent, there is no more sacrifice. We do not have any more sacrificial resources. If we're in the community that has just decided to stone the two elders instead of Susanna, we will wake up the next morning with a moral hangover, even though they were guilty. Increasingly, we will wake up with a moral hangover, even though they were guilty, because the truth has been revealed to us. And we no longer have the sacrificial option. We can no longer generate a social consensus of any duration or any real power sacrificially. Therefore, if we commit sins, meaning if we go ahead and engage in all of this craziness that, that gives birth, finally, to a sacrificial demand, a demand for scapegoats, if we continue to live that way, we will have nowhere to put all that violence when the time comes. We won't be able to polarize it effectively towards in one direction and, and get rid of it like the scapegoat. We won't be able to load up the whole sins of the whole community and put it on one person or one subculture and expel them and return to order. We won't have that option anymore. And if we don't have that option anymore, says the author to the letter to the Hebrews, which is really a harangue to the Hebrews, which is what I'm doing here probably, 
He says, quote, There will be nothing left but the dread prospect of crisis and of the raging fire that burns rebels. And I think that's what's happening in lots of the places in the world. So I think it's very important for us to realize that things, that there are apocalyptic things happening. They're not the, they're not the kind of crude and gruesome apocalyptic that, that uh, some fundamentalist sects uh, are enthusiastic about, where God is going to come down and wipe everybody away. It's not God. It's human violence is going to, ha- is going to begin operating without this illusion too precious to be relinquished. And once human violence begins to operate without the ability to generate that illusion, then there will be no way for it to turn itself into order. As long as you have the possibility of going mad enough to generate the illusion that is too precious to be relinquished, according to Professor Smith, as long as you have the ability to go mad enough to generate that illusion, you can turn chaos into order. But once you can't do that, you can't turn chaos into order anymore. It just turns into, a, there's a momentary respite while one little myth has its 15 minutes of fame, and then it completely collapses and it goes back into chaos again. And so the problem of violence has to be solved before it gets there. And so the problem of the apocalypse becomes a moral problem for individuals and communities. But before I get to that, I want to come to that at the very end. Before I get to that, I'll just touch a little bit on Robert Kaplan's article in the Atlantic Monthly. I think it may be seen in hindsight as something like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. I think it has... I I don't entirely agree with the article, but I'm not well enough informed to disagree in an informed way with a lot of it. But... I don't disagree with very much of it, by the way, but I, I think, nevertheless, I think he's saying things, as Professor Smith is in his Virginia Law Review article, I think they're saying things that, that we need to now confront, and they are things that have an apocalyptic aspect to them without any question. Kaplan says, for example, he's talking about the worldwide crisis. The title of his article is The Coming Anarchy. He's talking about a worldwide crisis, but he says, if you want to see what's coming in the 21st century, go to West Africa. He says, what is happening in West Africa and other parts of the third world is a paradigm for, quote, what will soon confront our civilization. And then he says, what is occurring throughout West Africa and much of the underdeveloped world is the withering away of central governments, the rise of tribal and regional domains, the unchecked spread of disease and the growing pervasiveness of war. Quoting still, the Ivory Coast faces a possibility worse than a coup. He he spends a little time looking at the Ivory Coast. A possibility worse than a coup. Quote, an anarchic implosion of criminal violence, an urbanized version of what has already happened in Somalia, or it may become an African Yugoslavia, and so on and so forth. And he catalogs, he he traveled in many, many places, and he saw the signs of the times. He quotes, by the way, an Israeli military historian whose name is von Kreveld, and this man says the following, which is more than interesting. Quote, Once the legal monopoly of armed force long claimed by the state is wrested out of its hands, 
Existing distinctions between war and crime will break down, as is already the case today in Lebanon, Sri Lanka, El Salvador, Peru, and Colombia. The existing distinction between war and crime will break down. That's the apocalypse. That's the, now, what does that mean? That means the distinction between good and bad violence is dis, has dissolved. And the distinction between good and bad violence is one that is that the absolute distinction between good and bad violence can only be created by the sacred. It is the sacred. It's the sacralization of the good violence that creates the fundamental distinction between good ba- violence and bad violence, between war, a legitimate activity, and crime, an illegitimate one. And the inability to create and maintain that distinction is the central feature of our world. And that's what's throwing us into crisis. And what's causing that is the gospel. Fundamentally. Now you say, wait a minute, these cultures, some of them, most of them have obviously been touched by the, by the, the Western extension of the biblical revelation. I say the Western extension. Western culture, all of, so many of the institutions in Western, Western culture are driven by a biblical imperative. The imperative to re- rehabilitate the, the victim, to to uh, to repent for past victimization, uh, episodes of victimization, and to create social structures that are sympathetic uh, and empathetic towards marginal people and those who might be victimized and so on. And we're always never doing it a very good job. And every generation has to then uh, look back on its ancestors and find them culpable and try to do better and so on. But that's Western history. That has now moved into the whole world. In not only in term, not in terms of any kind of Christian proselytizing, but in terms of you know human rights, the emphasis on human rights, journalism, free press, uh, the free flow of ideas. You see, so even cultures that all they want is the market economy, they end up getting the judicial system, free press, uh, the whole deal, and pretty soon they have the same problem that we have. And I say it's a pro- it's a problem. The problem is we can't generate the illusions too precious to be relinquished, quote, end quote, Professor Smith. So the good news is embedded in the bad news. The bad news, it's all falling apart. The good news is it's doing so because of the gospel. I, I think that's true. Now, Kaplan has a beautiful thing in his article about his visit to the slums in Ankara, Turkey, a, a almost completely Muslim society. And these slums, he said, unlike any place in the world he had been, these slums were perfectly safe. He said he had $1,500 in his pocket and so on and so forth. He walked in these slums, no fear at all. He walked into these shacks and inside they were homes. And he, he didn't recognize clearly enough, I think, in the article, but he recognizes it pretty clearly that that's brought about because of religion. That it's religion that stabilizes. And, that, and, and it confirms what Professor Smith was saying, you see. Professor Smith says, since we can't have any of that anymore, we better invent something that will take its place. But what Kaplan was finding in Ankara was the thing itself. Religion. Making society stable and sane. And of course that... Has, it always has another aspect to it. Is it making it stable and sane because of its, its transcendence or because of its 
sacrificial nature. And that's a question we have to ask about Christianity and Judaism and Islam all the and any religion. We have to ask that about any religion. So when I'm using Islam here, I'm not I'm not trying to scapegoat Islam at all. Matter of fact, I'm admiring its capacity to make as Kaplan did is to to give this incredible serenity and beauty and civility to a social setting, social and economic setting, which Kaplan says in any other part of the world would have been just rife with violence. And he said there's virtually no violence in this community against persons. There's almost ve- there's very little theft at all. But in terms of violence of, against persons, what we call violence, almost none. So that's a tremendous thing. Religion holds it together. But then he notices something else. And I, I'll point this out again. I'm not trying to pick on Islam by any means because it's certain all you have to do is go see what the what the Christians are doing to each other in Bos- Bosnia, doing to all sorts of the Muslims in Bosnia and Northern Ireland and all lots of other places to realize that the Christian tradition has exactly the same problem. But there's a feature to it that Kaplan, who's himself sympathetic to the effects of uh, Islam in places like Ankara, points out. And then he goes on to say, Beyond its stark and clearly articulated message, Islam's very militancy makes it attractive to the downtrodden. By the way, I think my one argument with Kaplan is that his he, he unwittingly perpetuates not exactly a Marxist analysis, but at least an economic analysis of these things, which I think is, which I think is terribly shallow. So the term downtrodden here has a, t- a touch of that, but I'll come to that in a second. Beyond its stark and clearly articulated message, Islam's very militancy makes it attractive to the downtrodden. It is the one religion that is prepared to fight. Now think about that. What has happened in the world? It didn't used to be the one religion that's prepared to fight. It's, and in fact, there are plenty of people with other religious uh, convictions that are prepared to fight. But the, is the religion itself prepared to fight? You see, well, yes and no. But I think it's an ins- it's an interesting insight. We shouldn't reserve it only for the Islamic tradition because we all stand under the judgment of the cross. But it's the one religion that's preser- prepared to fight. A political then he goes on. A political era driven by environmental stress, increased cultural sensitivity, unregulated urbanization and refugee migrations is an era divinely created for the spread and intensification of Islam, already the world's fastest-growing religion. Now, not its willingness to fight. And I think that is... I think that is the... Willingness to fight means the willingness to try at least to sacralize its violence. If a religion is willing to fight, it means it's, it's ready to try to sacralize its violence. Here's where Kaplan falls down, and I want to quote this and then go to something else, and I know we're taking all day. Kaplan says, 
Kaplan quotes uh, Andre Malraux to this effect. Oh, what a relief to fight, to fight enemies who defend themselves, enemies who are awake. Nietzsche, this is really Nietzsche. It's warmed over Nietzsche. And then Kaplan says, referring to what Malraux has just, that quote that I just quoted from Malraux, he says, I cannot think of a more suitable battle cry for many combatants in the early decades of the 21st century. What a relief to have enemies that I can fight against. And then Kaplan misses the point a little bit, I think, but I want to quote it to you and then go on. The intense savagery of the fighting in such diverse cultural settings as Liberia, Bosnia, the Caucasus, Sri Lanka, to say nothing of what obtains in American, America inner cities, America's inner cities, indicates something very troubling that those of us in the West haven't the stomach to contemplate. It is this. A large number of people on this planet to whom the comfort and stability of a middle-class life is utterly unknown, find war and a barracks existence a step up rather than a step down. Now, you see what I mean when I say that that's too economic? I think it doesn't go to the heart of this. You don't have a passion for the kind of, the kind of brutality that war involves in settings that he's talking about for economic reasons. And I, I think that's where the economic analysis simply won't work. You have to go to religion. The heart of anthropology is religion. The heart of the present crisis is anthropological, which means to say it's, which is to say it's religious. And that's why people like Professor Smith are way off the base in one way, but right on target in another. So I wanted to go to one other source and then try to wrap up here. And that is Michael Ignatiev, who wrote a book called Blood and Belonging, excerpts from which were uh, published in Harper's this month and he says this every and he he goes looking at the same events in many ways that Kaplan was looking at this sort of rise of nationalism this this uh, extremist national what what we call when we first see it we say oh this is this is radical nationalism or nationalist extremism or something like that because it always has its it has its ethnic uh, frame of reference or whatever it is, you know. So that's what we see it as. And Ignatiev says, everywhere I've been, nationalism is most violent where the group you are defining yourself against most closely resembles you. Now think about that. And then he says, a rational explanation of the conflict would predict the reverse to be the case. Well, I would say Girard has a perfectly rational explanation of it which predicts this to be the case. And even Ignatiev acknowledges that because he says, quote, Since Cain and Abel, we have known that hatred between brothers is more ferocious than hatred between strangers. Who taught us that? Where did we learn that? Since Cain and Abel. We learned it from the biblical tradition. What's revealing the nature of this thing we're caught in? It's the biblical tradition. From the death of Abel the just to Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. And Ignatiev, who hasn't read that passage in 30 years, no doubt, still in all is benefiting from the epistemological power of it. So, nationalism is most violent when the group you're defining yourself against most resembles you. And, and what people are noticing now, you see a lot of articles coming out now, where people are saying, you know, really, there's no difference between these two warring factions. 
<laughs> they claim to to be, you know, Bosnians or, or you know, Orthodox or Christians, or, but fundamentally they're the same, and they're not even very religious people. They suddenly they become they claim these religious banners, but fundamentally they're pretty secularized people. They used to live together okay. Background for the apocalyptic discourse here. <laughs> Why would there be more violence between those combatants that most resemble each other? Because the purpose of the violence is to make a distinction. I read the next passage from Ignatius' essay, fully aware that today is Holy Saturday. He says, After you have been to the wastelands of the New World Order, particularly to those fields of graves marked with numberless wooden crosses, you feel stunned into silence by a deficit of moral explanation. So his image for this, the, the scope of this violence is fields of graves marked with numberless wooden crosses. I think it's an incredible image for the apocalypse in a way because the apocalypse is if you will, the apocalypse is absolutely real out there. People are dying. But the recognition of it as the apocalypse is in the eye of the beholder. We recognize it as apocalyptic because we're not caught up in it. And so, like Ignatius, we are stunned into silence by a deficit of moral explanation. Myth exists to keep us, myth exists to stun us into silence. But it keeps us, it stuns us into another kind of silence, a silence which does not need moral explanation because it is obvious. You see what I mean? And we're being stunned into this other kind of silence, the absence of any moral explanation. I think one of the richest things in Ignatius' essay is this. Everywhere I went, there was a bewildering insincerity and inauthenticity to nationalist rhetoric as if the people who mouthed nationalist slogans were aware somewhere inside of the implausibility of their own words. Serbs who in one breath would tell you that all Croats were Ustasi beast would in the next recall the happy days when they lived with them in peace. In this divided consciousness, the plane of abstract fantasy and the plane of direct experience were never allowed to intersect. The barrier between those two is created by myth. And the removing of that barrier is identical to the rending of the temple veil. Then he goes on to say, Nationalism is a form of speech that shouts not merely so that it will be heard, but so that it will believe itself. It is almost as if the quotient of crude historical fiction, violent moral exaggeration, ludicrous caricature of the enemy, is in direct proportion to the degree to which the speaker is himself aware that it is all really a pack of lies. Now, that is a mouthful. Now, look at the litany. Crude historical fiction, violent moral exaggeration, ludicrous caricature of the enemy. That's the stuff that myth is made of right there. The people who are invoking it the hottest are people who don't really believe it. And that's, that's the world we live in. And then he goes, final 
line in that uh, paragraph. But this insincerity may be a functional requirement of a language that is burdened with the task of insisting upon such a high volume of untruths. Now, let me stop for a second. Well, I guess I would just say, correlate Professor Smith's idea of an illusion too precious to be relinquished with Ignatiev's uh, insight that this insincerity is a functional requirement of a language that is burdened with the task of insisting upon such a high volume of untruth. So we are horrified by all this violence that Kaplan and Ignatieff and others are, are cataloging precisely because we are not trapped in the myth that justifies it. The violence is horrendous precisely because neither are its perpetrators entirely caught up in its myth. If we were caught up in the myth, we would not be horrified by it. If its perpetrators were totally caught up in it, then acts of violence on a much smaller scale would provide the social catharsis they need to keep their camaraderie hard and warm. In other words, the violence is shocking and we are shocked by it because neither we nor its perpetrators have been sufficiently swept up into its justifying myth. And the failure to be swept up in the justifying myth leads partisans to exaggerate their moral claims and their violence. As uh, Ignatieff says, there's this incredible absence of moral explanation. And what all this is, I think, is the cock crowing. I think it's the cock is crowing in the world and we are less and less able to drown out the, the, the crowing of the cock with the kind of hoopla and cacophony that our sacrificial rituals used to generate, which drowned it out. Gerard speaks of the panic-stricken refusal to glance even furtively in the only direction where meaning can still be found. That's, he's talking about the intellectual climate. By the way, he wrote that in, in, in the mid-70s. So... The panic-stricken refusal to glance even furtively in the only direction where meaning could still be found. Now, Ignatiev says he was able to understand this, this inexplicable event of more violence between people who were similar because he knew the Cain and Abel story. So he, there was a little quick glance, maybe. But Gerard says we're unwilling to realize that the biblical tradition is the one that has the epistemological key for understanding what's happening in our world. And he says, we are experiencing, this is Gerard continuing, we are experiencing a gigantic intellectual expulsion of the whole Judeo-Christian tradition, which means, among other things, that any form of genuinely serious religious or cultural problematic is also expelled. The expulsion becomes more and more systematic in direct proportion to the increase in the intelligibility of the biblical message in proportion to the self-revelation of violence in history and technology. Well, I put that here because Ignatiev wants to come to grips with what he has seen. And he, he, like Kaplan, like all of us, looks around for the epistemological key for opening this imponderable thing that he's looking at. And Kaplan turns to economics, and Ignatiev turns to something a little, that goes a little more to the heart of the matter, but not quite. He says this. Perhaps liberals 
have not understood. By the way, he ends by saying he's a liberal, so I'm not trying to have a liberal conservative argument here. Perhaps liberals have not understood the force of male resentment that is accumulated through centuries of gradual European pacification. That's a marvelous sentence. You can see sort of where he missed it and what it was he missed almost. It's, so it's a revelatory sentence, but he misses it, I think. Male resentment. However, he does say that has accumulated through centuries of gradual European pacification. Under what force? Under what force was there a gradual European pacification? And resentment, he's right about this. He says, liberals have not reckoned with male loathing of peace and domesticity and with the anger of young males at the modern state's confiscation of their weapons. One of the hidden explanations behind the nationalist revolts is that they tap into the deep substratum of male resentment at the civility and order of the modern state. Well, I think it's, I think it's both shallow and deep. But where it's shallow, it's right. Where it's deep, it's wrong. <laughs> um, there is resentment. Resentment is frustrated vengeance. And it's frustrated because we can't act on it anymore, because the Gospels have weighed in against it. They have said, turn the other cheek. Forgive seven times, seventy times. Love your enemy. So there's a lot of frustrated vengeance in the, in the world, no doubt. And that's resentment. But to say that the violence is because of male resentment is to miss its generativity, the need to generate culture, the role of violence in generating cultural camaraderie. Ignatieff says, and this is my final quote from him, this is where he gets past the idea of resentment to something more profound. He says, I began my journey as a liberal and I ended as one, but I cannot help thinking that liberal civilization... The rule of laws, not men, of arguments in place of force, of compromise in place of violence, runs deeply against the human grain and is achieved and sustained only by the most unremitting struggle against human nature. So he ends as an Augustinian. The unremitting struggle against human nature. And I think that's better than male resentment by a long shot. And it's a whole lot better than economics. But even that, you know, I think when... You see, one of the things that Girard's idea of mimetic desire does, acquisitive desire, is that it, it shows us precisely what it is about human nature that goes awry and why it goes awry. Well, I hope we can recognize the good news hidden in the bad news. It doesn't make what's going on in the world suddenly a happy thing. But it gives us the reassurance to speak of it in Christian terms that the risen Christ is still the Lord of history. And I think the first Christian's understanding of that holds up. But what I'd like to do is now turn to something that I came upon. I came upon this thing called the Epistle to... Diognetus, which describes a 4th century Christian community. And here's what it says about them. They live in their own countries, but simply as visitors. To them, every foreign land is a fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. Isn't that, isn't that a good thing? That's what we need to do. It reminds me of this thing John Lukacs, who's a, histori a historian, 
used to teach his students in the 50s. He used to, at some point in his introductory class, he would say to his students, and he was teaching at a, at a Catholic school, I think. He said, he, at some point he would say, are you, uh, are you Christians who happen to be Americans or Americans who happen to be Christians? Well, that's this. They live in their own countries, but simply as visitors. To them, every foreign land is a fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They spend their existence on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and in their own lives, they try to surpass these laws. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They lack everything, and in everything they abound. They are humiliated, and their humiliation becomes their glory. They are abused, and they bless. They are reviled and are justified. They are insulted, and they repay insults with honor. Well, the business of renouncing hatred and vengeance may not be any easier than that. All of us who are not capable of that, I count myself among them, should go down on our knees every night and thank God we're not living in a world where that's what would be required of us. Although maybe if we were, we would live up to it. Who knows? But it may not be any easier than that. And I think that's why the old idea of the church as the body of Christ is really the better. Now we're now the church thinks of itself as the people of God. I, I, I think it's better to go back to the body of Christ. This concludes Gil Bailey's Reflections on the Bible, Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.